welcome everybody to another installment of the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on China, the Pacific, and America, and the future of the 21st century. I'm John Yu. I'm a professor at UC Berkeley and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. I'm joined by my co-host, Misha Oslin, fellow at the Hoover Institution as well. Say hi to everybody, Misha. Hi, everybody. <laughs> We've got a great guest who Misha's going to introduce now, and then we're going to Go right to some questions. Really looking forward to this. This is a really great opportunity. Misha, who do we have with us today? John, we do. We are honored to have Admiral Phil Davidson join us. Uh, Admiral Davidson, many of you already know and have, have worked with him, but he is, for those who don't know, the 25th commander of United States Indo-Pacific Command, which is America's oldest and largest military combatant command. He's based in Hawaii. And there are 380,000 soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, Coast Guardsmen, and Department of Defense civilians at Indo-Pacific Command. It's responsible for all of U.S. military activities in the Indo-Pacific. That covers 36 nations, 14 time zones, and more than 50% of the world's population. Uh, Admiral Davidson has been in the Navy since 1982. He's a graduate of the United States Naval Academy. He's a surface warfare officer, and he has deployed across the globe in frigates, destroyers, cruisers, and aircraft carriers, and has served at command levels in Northern Command, U.S. Fleet Forces Command, uh, U.S. Naval Forces Europe, uh, and Africa. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, his career and talk about, of course, what he's doing currently in the Indo-Pacific. But first, Admiral Davidson, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thank you so much, Misha and John. It's uh, good to join uh, Hoover uh, in this conversation. Thanks a bunch. We're thrilled to have you. John, over to you. So, uh, Admiral, uh, before we get to the substance, I, uh, I just want to ask a personal question. You, it says in your bio you grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. How does a landlubber like you end up in the Navy? I had to double check Wikipedia to make sure, but it looks like Missouri is smack dab in the middle of the United States, as far from either of the oceans as you could probably get and still be in the United States. How is it that you ended up wanting to be in the Navy? Shouldn't you be like in the Army or the Air Force or maybe those people you cart around the Marine Corps? But the Navy, how did that happen? Thanks for the question, John. I appreciate it. Actually, I had not seen the ocean in my lifetime until I was 18 years old. (laughs) Really? That's amazing. Yeah, so was it you show up at Annapolis? They say, we want to show you the ocean when you get to Annapolis, and it's the Atlantic Ocean. That's your first time? That's exactly <laughs> right. I had a brother that preceded me, actually, at Annapolis. So I was f- familiar with uh, his experience, certainly, and had been to Annapolis. And uh, I was I was really anxious to go. You know, for a 17-year-old, um, a hard decision. And your lifestyle choices then are, are probably pretty simple. And, and really, all I could think about at 17 was when I'm 22, 23 years old, I don't think I want to sit at a desk. I'd, I'd like to have a bigger adventure early. And that's how I ended up there. I think the, the bigger question, Admiral, is coming from St. Louis, and I, I speak now as a Chicagoan, so you know where this is going. Are you a Cards fan? 
Oh, yeah. And my oh, boy. wife is a lunatic cards fan. Oh, boy. And I guess oh, boy. the interview is over, John. <laughs> this is, this is going to be a much rougher a much rougher interview. Now, now if we were yeah. lawyers and John is, we'd say permission to treat as a hostile witness. <laughs> really? That's yeah, where that's we'd right. be going now. So so now that now that we know that uh, uh, it was the lure of the sea and your brother that that brought you out, I mean, sir, you do serve in um, what I think it's hard for a lot of Americans to understand the scope of Indo-PACOM. And I, I of course, you know, just gave a few of the statistics. Um, Maybe we could start at actually with sort of your, the bird's eye view as the commander, uh, as you, as you see the region and how do you approach it? I mean, obviously there's China, but then there's allies and uh, there's, there's tiny islands. I mean, uh, literally as you sit at the desk, what does it mean to you? that we have an Indo-Pacific command for the security of the United States. And after that, we want to get into some of the specifics about recent testimony that you've done. But maybe you can tell us how, how you approach the day of saying, this is more than 50% of the Earth's surface. How, how do you do that? Uh, thanks for the question, Misha. You know, really, I look at it quite simply. I was in a briefing when I was the Sixth Fleet commander and the uh, striking and support forces NATO commander in Europe. And it was in uh, London, and it was about the demography of the Asia Pacific. And this was in uh, 2013, I think, off the top of my head, uh, 2014, perhaps. And uh, I was struck by two simple facts. First, that two-thirds of the world's population by 2030 would be in the Indo-Pacific. And secondly, two-thirds of the global economy would be centered on the Indo-Pacific. That instantly made it clear to me that the prosperity of the United States and its security concerns would be focused on the Indo-Pacific in the future. So the um, the the way that the combatant command works, of course, and after uh, Goldwater Nichols, is that you you are responsible directly to uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and then the the, the Secretary of Defense uh, and uh, the President. Uh, but underneath you are other uh, four star general officers. Um, uh, how how do you work together in in the sense that uh, though you're a Navy admiral, you you really have to be able to integrate all of the the different elements of uh, of U.S. power in the region. Um, what is it like working with the different uh, major commands underneath you? Uh, and and what maybe briefly, so our, our audience can understand what what does each bring to the table? You know, they they all are very different. Yeah, um, thanks. The um, you know, as a joint headquarters, and my experience here at Indo-PACOM is really not any different than any of the other combatant commanders. You know, we have a component structure, service by service that serves us. I've benefited from the fact that we have, you know, four-star headquarters here. Um, two of the uh, of the five of them, you know, really remnants of the World War II era in which it took major theater operations with a naval component and uh, the air component over time during the war um, to, you know, have four-star headquarters that, could then command and control multiple three-star operational level headquarters uh, going forward. So in just Pacific Fleet's case, right, you've got Third Fleet managing essentially the eastern half of the Pacific and the Seventh Fleet managing the western half. Um, You have to have a four-star commander that can integrate those things together. 
my conversations and the work with them are pretty seamless. I benefit from the fact that uh, all of them are here in Hawaii. Um, so I see them all quite frequently, even by video teleconference. I, I had one just a couple of hours ago in which all my component commanders uh, came together uh, on concerns we have about uh, the remainder of the calendar year. And, um, you know, so that gives us an opportunity to really integrate the planning. Secondly, to really integrate, you know, joint capabilities into all this, which is really important in an age in which you're trying to innovate. Um, you, you know, it's the service components that actually have their hands on, you know, the service innovation initiatives that you can put into play quickly uh, to exercise or to put in an operational environment as well. So, you know, that's one of the really helpful things also. It's a very collaborative, uh, cooperative kind of environment. Um, and frankly, if I've learned anything, and I, I hope that the general public and certainly the department sees us through our efforts out here. You know, the success of the United States Armed Forces in any theater has been when it relies on its joint capability. And we make a lot out of the fact that it is a very large maritime and, and air theater, and there is no doubt about it. Um, but um, any, any review of history, going back over the last 80 years or so, you know, shows you that when you bring all the joint elements together, that's really when you've got... Um, Profound deterrent capability and war-winning capability. If you were forced to a fight, and 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 the the structure that we have, and particularly your your structure, is is really sort of unparalleled. Uh, certainly, it's unparalleled around the world today, but it's it's also unparalleled in history. We actually had one of your component commanders, General Wilsbach, the uh, commander of Pacific Air Forces, with us on the podcast a few months ago, and he talked about uh, both the joint uh, element, but as, as as well the air element. And so, um, it's it's fantastic to be able to get from you, both the naval, but the overall element. And that's what I'd, I'd just like to switch to, uh, which is to talk a little bit about the, the testimony you gave before Congress last month. And I know you've you've talked about this uh, a lot. Um, it was sort of a summation for you, in a sense, having uh, been sitting in the chair for a few years. Um, but it was a it, it made a lot of headlines. Um, you asked for an extra or for another $4.6 billion for fiscal year 2022 uh, alone, um, overall, 27 billion uh, over a five year period, 2022 uh, to 2027. But you were very specific in an open setting. This wasn't classified, uh, what, what obviously what the public heard, but you know, were very specific about what you felt you needed uh, in order to maintain uh, the edge and maintain, in fact, the ability to uh, have a credible deterrence across. Uh, across the Indo-Pacific, and it is certainly not what your predecessors would have needed to ask for 10 years ago, or, or, or certainly 15 and 20 years ago. Uh, could you talk a little bit about why you feel you need uh, new missiles, you, you want long-range missiles, uh, why you need the uh, the air defenses that you talked about, the radar systems, uh, where you, you felt that the greatest threats uh, to our, uh, our bases were, and you, you singled out Guam. Um, in, in other words, for a layperson, how worried do they need to be hearing your testimony last month? Yeah, that's that's quite a long uh, quite a long answer to give you, Misha. Um, I would put it this way: you know, our, our job starts with defending United States territory, our U.S. interests abroad, our allied obligations, um, and sustaining the peace. Um, so, um, you know, a lot of the investments in my mind need to begin with defenses. 
And as you look at the proliferation of threats in the region, and then they, they range from North Korea, Russia, China, violent extremist organizations. And we have the effects of uh, uh, climate change, natural disasters, and the things, uh, things associated with that that we have to deal uh, with out here as well. Um, you know, it, it, it defines the problem for you and the defenses that you need. Um, Guam runs to the forefront because it is our westernmost U.S. territory. And um, we have U.S. territories uh, throughout the Pacific. We have um, compacts with three nations in the Pacific Island chain, Palau, the Federated States of Micronesia, and the Republic of the Marshall Islands that we're obligated to defend. Um, and of course, we have key allies, Japan, Korea, Philippines, Australia, Thailand, uh, with a large fixed base structure in Japan and Korea. So you've got a plan for the defense of all that. And as I've seen the threats uh, proliferate, certainly North Korea, China, absolutely, since the turn of the century. Um, orders of magnitude um, improvements in numbers of capability. You know, you've got a plan for that. Secondly, you know, we all know from playing any sport, you can't win a game by playing defense only. So you've got to put credible offense on the field to give your opponent, adversary, um, pause in what the military pursuit of their objectives might be. Um, in my mind, a broader base of longer range precision fires, meaning you know, long range precision fires that are available in all domains. That includes all the terrestrial domains, the service components as, as, as I would know it, um, but certainly non-kinetic fires that might be available to you in cyberspace and the capabilities that are starting to be, uh, be developed in space alone are going to be required. Why? Well, you know, there's a profound relationship between defense, maneuver, and offense um, to facilitate all those three things. Um, so the correct balance there will help put in the region a deterrent posture that would prevent a flight, while at the same time giving you the capability set. Once you start to add logistics and sustainment, once you add the credible sensing and awareness, all that stuff, um, to actually fight and win if challenged, particularly on a short time. And I think that's important, and that's what's defined um, our overall approach here in the region. And it's, it's the backbone of my request um, uh, in the 1251 assessment in 22, it was known as the 1253 in uh, 21. Um, and, and really, I think will serve as the backbone recommendation to the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. Hi, everyone. Let me um, ask uh, more specifically about things that uh, people in the United States are worried about uh, in terms of applying what you've just said to I'm sorry, I'm a lawyer. I talk like this. But taking the principles you laid out, applying it to specific cases. See, that wasn't so painful. I didn't even charge anybody any money to go through it like that. So um, the South China Sea and Taiwan, you know, we're reading, well, you know, what, what could we really do to stop what's going on in the South China Sea where China you know, is uh, doing everything from using real military to the Coast Guard to now these strange flotillas of alleged fishing vessels to try to crowd everybody out and take over uh, land or build artificial islands. What, what can we do to stop this expansion of Chinese, not just influence, but just like Chinese seizure of uh, territory? Um, you know, first, 
Um, we need to make clear that the issues in the South China Sea and the East China Sea elsewhere, you know, these are not China-US issues. These are actually China and the international order issues. And the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, you know, had an arbitral ruling in 2016 uh, that said China's claims were, were um, not in compliance with um, international. In law, we use the word illegal, but go ahead. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, they yeah. were illegal. Yeah. International law and our operations there, whether they're freedom of navigation operations, um, which is a specific, you know, legal regime that the United States conducts or, you know, broader operations in the South China Sea, um, you know, they need to be supported by not only the United States, but by all the nations of the world who are so dependent on the economy um, that flows through the South China Sea. And a lot of people get focused on the sea lanes themselves, but it's also about the air lanes. It's about the trillions of dollars of financial activity that is actually transmitted under the South China Sea to key places like Singapore, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Seoul, San Francisco, Manila, and so forth. Um, uh, and it's and and the freedoms that are provided for by the by international law and everybody's access to them. So we routinely operate with other nations. Other nations are routinely operating there. Just in the last week, uh, the French have been operating in the South China Sea. The United States has been operating uh, independently as well. So, you know, that's all critically important. I don't want to gloss over the fact that I mentioned allies and partners, because that is the critical strength of the United States. Um, we have common security concerns. We have shared values. And we have mutual interests. And when, those, when you bring those three things together in alliance and partnership network, it's quite, quite powerful. And I know it has an impact because the Chinese complain about it. And you see that in the day-to-day -day news, not, not only in the military sphere, but in all the economic and international diplomacy news that happen um, uh, throughout the world. Yeah, nobody wants to be a voluntary ally of China's these days. But, uh, and everyone's sort absolutely of right. clamoring to be... Uh, you know, clamoring to be an ally of the United States, who would have thought the U.S. Navy would visit Camran Bay again in Vietnam, you know, in our lifetimes? What about Taiwan? That's another thing that people are talking a lot about in Washington right now is for some reason there's, I wouldn't call it a war scare, but there's a lot of chatter in the newspapers, opinion shows saying, oh, we, what if China were to, you know, to militarily try to take Taiwan? What, how would, how could we do anything about it uh you know what what i, I find a really difficult uh, problem and you have uh some people here in the beltway who are saying there's nothing we could do about it you know, ultimately we'd have you know we'd have to walk away there are obviously others who are saying we want to give the taiwanese enough resources to fight and there's some people who say the u.s navy should get involved but what what do you think is really the best course of action if there were some kind of threat to taiwan well, uh, thanks, John. Well, I, th I think our audience knows all too well that the U.S. policy toward China and our relationship with Taiwan strictly adheres to the United States' one China policy. Yeah. 
And that's in support of the Taiwan Relations Act, where we help provide for um, the defensive needs of uh, Taiwan. Uh, the three joint communiques, as well as the six reassurances. Um, it's clear to me that Beijing is pushing across the globe to diplomatically isolate Taiwan. They use economic coercion. They use uh, diplomatic coercion to try to get those outcomes. And the objective of our own defense engagement with Taiwan is to ensure Taiwan remains secure, competent, free from coercion and able to engage in a peaceful and productive dialogue to resolve any differences in a manner that's acceptable to both sides of the Taiwan Strait. Um, I remarked earlier about our defensive posture. Um, you know, a component of that and what I partially just described in the Taiwan Relations Act is ensuring that uh, Taiwan has the defense articles that they need uh, in order to defend. And that, you know, involves consistent um, foreign arms sales um, to Taiwan. That includes uh, Taiwan purchasing the correct capabilities. In my mind, those are a mix of conventional deterrent capabilities, um, like modern F-16 aircraft, modernized Patriot missiles, ship submarines, aircraft, that kind of stuff. But it also requires a focus on asymmetric means, coastal defense cruise missiles, um, sea mines, um, beach defenses, and things like that as well. Um, Taiwan also needs to focus on, you know, creating a reserve structure and a civil support structure that would be effective. You know, we they need to put forth, you know, the porcupine-like posture <laughs> that makes it difficult to swallow, right? What is the nature of that? You... Um, make it clear that the cost of any yeah. potential PRC action is perhaps high and could fail. Um, if you raise the cost in that calculus, you know, that helps deter one, mm -hmm. uh, but certainly makes clear too that if you got to a fight that you could inflict some pain. Um, I don't think China wants that. Um, and um, I don't think the, the, the rest of us on the globe uh, want that either. Back to you. I agree. Uh, it seems to me that, uh, as you say, you make the cost of any kind of military conflict in Taiwan so high, you actually reduce the chances anyone will start one in the first place. I hope you're right, Admiral. You so, so, Admiral, one of the complexities that, that you deal with, of course, is you've got um, – uh, you've got a, a, a great variety of states, right? You have states that, uh, like Japan, which have a much uh, larger military, large, much larger military budget comparatively. Uh, you have much smaller states. Uh, you have you have the islands that you mentioned. Um, how confident are you as you've as you've uh, you know had this position for four years that um, that they're able to do what you know we think they need to do to defend themselves. You just mentioned some of the things that Taiwan needs to do, and that's probably the underappreciated part of the, the equation with Taiwan is what Taiwan needs to do. Um, do, you, do you think they're, they're all doing what they need to do? Because certainly we're not going to do, we're not going to do all of it. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I, and I think the American people appreciate that as well. And um, we are seeing you know, our allies and partners in the region invest um, quite strongly. You know, J Japan has increased their defense budget over a, a percentage point in the last year. 
Uh, Korea's uh, defense budget uh, in the last year is up 2.8% uh, after China and, I, and one of the Baltic states. That's the third highest uh, increase in the defense budget on the globe. Um, you know, uh, our ally Australia um, buys uh, U.S. equipment. Uh, they're investing in fifth-gen fighters like the F-35, integrated air and missile defense, combat systems um, that are um, uh, based on U.S. technologies and things like that. That's incredibly powerful and drives a level of compatibility and interoperability that's important. You know, India, with the restoration of the quad, um, you know, we resumed the Malabar exercise series in a quad format last fall. And I have, you know, very high hopes for the quad, you know, beyond just the security sphere. Um, to me, it's a diamond of democracies, you know, with the capacity, the capability, and I'm talking about India, Japan, Australia, and the United States. Um, and, you know, again, the, the common set of interests, um, values, and mutual security concerns um, that could really, um, you know, bring together the allied and partner network here in the region. Um, you know, one of our efforts here at Indo-PACOM during the three years that I've been in command here is, and again, it goes back to something we talked about earlier, is to make sure that um, it's clear to the region that um, the idea that tensions in the region are a U.S.-China issue is, is an incomplete, that the issues that China's very pernicious approach to the region is, um, whether it's their coercive economic practices, diplomacy, they're very corrupt business and governmental practices, or whether it's their co-option of international institutions like the, um, like some UN organizations that do telecommunications, that do aviation, do agriculture, things like that. Um, that, you know, like-minded nations coming together in an international posture have the strength and power to push back on China's pernicious approach. So maybe we could actually talk about the quad for a second. Um, you know, this has been a priority for the Biden administration just in its first three months. Obviously, the president had a principals meeting. We had a, a foreign secretary level meeting. Um, but it's it's unclear where the quad goes from here. What what is it specifically that you'd like to see it do? And 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 particularly, you said a second ago, not only in security, but particularly in in security. Do you really think that um, the Japanese, the Indians? Um, will even the Australians are, are are ready to do things like freedom of navigation operations are really ready to push back. They see, for example, what's happening at Whitson Reef right now. Um, where where would you hope the Quad specifically goes going forward? Well, again, you know, it's those of us in the military and think about strategy. You know, we talk about the dime, right? Diplomacy, information, uh, military, and economic spheres. I think there's opportunity in all three of those to work together. Um, you know, the economic strength of these four countries and how it could help align the region and push back on, uh, you know, issues like intellectual property theft and, you know, outright patent theft, you know, th things that are actually occur in the PRC and come to a set of norms that, um, uh, you know, support the economic rise across the region, you know, the target of the two-thirds of the global economy that will be out here um, during the course of the next 10 years, I think is, is really the ambition that we 
that the quad could be capable of. And um, I think there's much more to know. I mean, we, you know, really, we're like 14 months now, not even 13 months into, um, you know, rejuvenated alignment between these uh, four countries. And I think the opportunity is, is still to be defined and to come, but I have high hopes for it. Uh, one thing we we don't talk enough about, and, and we we keep trying to drag ourselves to it, uh, is is the Korea Peninsula, Korean Peninsula, and what's going on there. Uh, it, it's been quiet in general for a while, but obviously it's a major part of of your preparation. Uh, what's your assessment of of where uh, the Kim Jong Un uh, administration is, the regime? Uh, are you worried? Are you worried because you haven't seen much happening and something's going to happen? Are you uh, are you worried that uh, are we are we still on the same page with the South Koreans? What? Um, how do you feel about uh, leaving things now for uh, Admiral Aquilino, your your successor, uh, in terms of the the stability on the peninsula? Yeah, right out of the gate, the the administration declared that North Korea's nuclear ballistic missile and and other proliferation-related activities constitute a serious threat, um, not only to, um, to the region, uh, excuse me, not only to the Republic of Korea, but to the region as well. And, and really it undermines the global non-proliferation regime. So the White House has undertaken a, a thorough policy review of the state of play in North Korea. And they're doing that in combination with uh, uh, consultation, I should say, with the Republic of Korea, uh, Japan, and our other allies in the region on the ongoing pressure options and the potential for any future diplomacy. So, and, you know, our relationship with the Republic of Korea and Japan are really, really strong. I'm, I'm really pleased where we are. And um, we will absolutely work closely with them to determine the path forward. Now, um, you know, you did see a few weeks ago that the IAEA Board of Governors announced that um, the North uh, North Korea has may may have started a reprocessing effort. Um, reprocessing to make plutonium would represent a violation of of multiple uh, UN sanctions. And while the North Koreans have made no official announcement, you know that development is a concern uh, certainly to the United States, certainly to us here at Indo-PACOM and at U.S. Forces Korea, and certainly to our allies and partners in the region. So. Um, Things have been relatively quiet when it comes to ballistic missile uh, provocation, certainly. I mean, there has been some testing uh, in the last several weeks uh, and, uh, you know, some testing over the course of uh, the last uh, two years or so. These weren't entirely unexpected. Uh, back in October, uh, the North Koreans uh, paraded some, some eight uh, missiles uh, three of which we had not seen tested before. And uh, so we did expect some tests along the way. So we'll we'll see, you know, as the administration wraps its uh, policy review and its consultation with our allies here, we'll see where this takes us um, going forward. Uh, one more quick question, particularly from a naval perspective on on. Uh... North Korea, there were recent reports that it was getting much closer to uh, a functional uh, submarine-launched ballistic missile. Uh, how worried are you? I mean, these are incredibly complex systems. 
and and how worried are you that they're actually going to be able to do it, or are you even more worried that if they do it, uh, they may not be able to to you know to to handle it the way that that we've handled it with such safety measures in all of our uh, nuclear systems? Yeah, no, we we have seen them test uh, uh, some submarine launch ballistic missile like technology from a test platform itself. You know, as you imply directly, I, I mean, they are complex systems to bring together uh, submarines, uh, the weapon system, command and control at all, that uh, kind of going forward. We, we haven't see it, seen it uh, manifest in the whole um, just yet, and they've got significant challenges before them there. So we've got the Korean Peninsula, we have Taiwan, we've got Whitson Reef. Um, the, it, there's a lot of challenges that, again, 15 years ago, your predecessors really didn't have to think about. They had to think about Korea. We've had to think about that since the, the 60s. But there's a lot, the, uh, the 50s, there's a lot that we haven't had to think about. Um, how integrated is all of this? I mean, do, do, we, do you approach it uh, serially? You know, we, here's what we have to deal with with North Korea. Here's what we have to deal with with Whitson Reef. Here's the Taiwan equation. Here's the Strait of uh, Malacca. Um, how, how concerned are you that because we face these, these challenges and, and aggressive actors, uh, that a crisis in one will become an opportunity for another? So that if you have uh, something that that develops in Whitson Reef uh, between the Filipinos and the um, uh, the Chinese and and maybe the U.S. Uh, in to some degree gets involved, that that gives a green light to uh, China to do something vis a vis Taiwan, or gives Kim Jong Un the idea that this is now a good time to do whatever he thinks is good. Meaning, do do we have luxury to say we can focus on one thing at one time or? Might we find that while our attention is on one side, we get blinded on the other side? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'll go on long here, but you know, it, it's clear to me during China's you know timeline for its own ambitions, you know, the hundred year rise it hopes for itself by 2049. Um, if you look backwards in the mirror, you know, they are trying to address. What, what they consider to be internal sovereignty concerns. And that's how you look in the main, in the whole, and which is how I look at these problems. When you add together what's their concentration camps they've established in Xinjiang, you know, that's about, you know, security in their West, uh, the West part of their own country. When you look at Hong Kong, when you look at the activity along the line of actual control, not to mention Tibet, Bhutan, you know, the kind of influences there. The South China Sea is something that they consider a sovereignty concern. And certainly in the future, they think about Taiwan as a sovereignty uh, concern as well. Those, these are all milestones on their plan, their 100-year plan for, uh, to be a global power. Um, and that's what gives the region concern. So when you look at things like Whitson Reef and you look at things like activities in and around the Senkakus and you look at the amalgamation of, of what's happening with their military forces, what's happening with their maritime militia forces, um, the passage of the Coast Guard law, national security law and you know Patriot Act in uh, Hong Kong and things like that, you have to look at all these in the main. And when I pull it down to the military sphere, you know, this starts with 
modern military systems, right? Fourth and fifth gen fighters, long range air to air missiles, maneuvering and hypersonic ballistic missiles, advanced guided missile warships, the Red High class cruisers, for example, that are coming online now, many others. Second, they're training with it. And they're doing that in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, they're doing it up in the Bohai. And they're trying to integrate those you know, terrestrial um, you know, common forces with their rocket forces um, and other forces, you know, that, that's a concern. Third, you know, they've restructured into a joint structure. There's a Southern Theater Commander, an Eastern Theater Commander, a Northern Theater Commander, a Western Theater Commander. And um, we're starting to see, uh, you know, more joint exercising training operations happening in those individual theater commands, but some cross-theater coordination and collaboration is concerned. And then uh, fourthly, you know, combat support, sustainment, logistics, you can see them getting after all those things. Um, and then um, I already cited the, the things that are contributing in the, in the gray zone, as some know it. You know, for those of us that have been in the deterrence business for decades, you know, this is what happens in the day-to-day, -day, right? Um, and you're seeing it amalgamate um, the path from uh, the, the Coast Guard assets, the fishing fleets, things like that um, in uh, China. And um, we have to put forth a, a credible deterrent posture. That posture has to exist on a day-to-day -day basis. It has to be able to manage crises and flex be proactive, not just reactive. Um, and then, of course, you know, it's got to be ready to fight and win as well. Um, so it's a tall order, but one in which uh, the United States has some experience, um, a refreshment in uh, deterrence theory across the department and across the whole of the United States government is important when it comes to these things, um, because it's, it's evident to me that we're going to have to bring together all aspects of our national power and that includes economic and diplomatic and information power. And it includes this really strong network of allies and partners um, to bring this together in a way that's uh, credible and prevents um, a bad outcome in the Western Pacific or elsewhere on the globe. One of the things that uh, obviously was at the height of American thinking during the Cold War was uh, the, the strategic equation. I mean that in the old the old sense of of nuclear weapons. Uh, Admiral uh, Richard, who uh, heads up U.S. Strategic Command, uh, just testified uh, the other day about China's dramatic growth uh, in its uh, its nuclear uh, capabilities, and we really haven't thought that much about China as a nuclear actor. Uh, when you, before Congress, described China as the greatest long-term strategic threat uh, in the 21st century, uh, I think most Americans probably saw it in a very traditional way. You know, they, they thought about aircraft carriers and they thought about uh, fighters and, you know, they may have thought a little bit about cyber. Uh, but the nuclear world never went away. Uh, how, uh, can you tell us your, your thoughts on the nuclear picture that, that you faced and, and that your successors uh, will face and how worried you are uh, about the, what we know about China's nuclear doctrine, its its capabilities, its forces, and how we have to think about it after a very long vacation after the Cold War. Yeah, um, uh, thanks for that, Misha. It, you know, it, it, it is a change in the relationship as you look back over the course of the last 20 years. Um, 20 years ago, they had about a quarter uh, roughly um, about uh, uh, the nuclear delivery capability that they actually have today. And the estimates over the next 10 years is that capability will at least double. 
And, uh, and again, it's about nuclear delivery capability, not, and you know, there's all kinds of formal terms in the nuclear apparatus. So uh, I don't want to parse this uh, too much, but uh, that's expected to at least double over the next 10 years. It, it brings into the picture, you know, a, a nuclear um, uh, capability um, that starts to be of a, uh, of a scale and size that is approaching um, the United States deterrent uh, and the Russian um, capability as well. Um, you know, some estimates have it, have it quadrupling over the course of this decade. Again, nuclear delivery platforms. Um, if that were to occur, it would be, you know, we'd be overmatched slightly. And, um, you know, for STRATCOM, uh, that requires uh, a level of thinking and understanding about our own nuclear deterrent um, over the next 10 years and, you know, fundamentally kind of um, changes the overall planning approach as you intimated that they've been on over the course of the last uh, 30 years or so. Um, we see them modernizing um, not only the rocket forces, but they've put to sea uh, submarine ballistic missile forces. Um, uh, the H-6 uh, bomber is going to be capable um, of delivering nuclear weapons. You know, that brings about a triad there. That's uh, for China. Um, that's um, an absolute concern. And then we're seeing uh, their nuclear command and control communications um, you know, systems and exercising and posture um, step up the role as well. This is a major concern, um, again, not just for the United States, but for the international community, right? And our allies and partners in the region are feeling that um, uh, quite, quite strongly as well. Um, the importance of the nuclear deterrent in the United States, our guarantees of extended deterrence for Japan, for example, you know, have been critically important to the security across the globe for decades now, and it's going to be important going forward. There's no doubt about it. So you mentioned overmatch a, a minute ago, and I, I can just hear a, a lot of our listeners saying, okay, let's just cut to the chase. You know, are, are we overmatched today? Maybe not uh, in, in nuclear and certainly not in every field, but um, we play in a way game. Uh, we only have so many, you have only so many forces uh, in theater uh, at, at any given time. The theater itself is enormous. Um, it's what, about three weeks steaming from San Diego over to South China Sea and, and down to Malacca Strait area. Uh, it can take uh, weeks, uh, a, couple, a week or more to get from Japan down to Australia. I mean, it's a huge region, and that doesn't even include uh, the Indian Ocean and, and going as far as your AOR, your area of responsibility does. So, you know, as, as you sort of, as you prepare to step back, um, uh, how do you, how do you assess it? You know, for the American people, um, you have the most incredible uh, service members under you. You have the most incredible uh, platforms, but there's there's all not not that many overall, and um, and a lot of them are older. How can we do? Can, can we do what we really need to do? Uh, if if it came to it, how confident are you of that? Well, I'm an optimist, Misha, um, and, and have been throughout my career. I mean, it's been, you know, the great privilege of my, my lifetime to serve with the men and women that occupy um, our armed forces. You know, it began in the Navy for me, but now all across the Joint Force. And uh, as I've gotten older and uh, more senior in this, you know, I've had the pleasure and privilege to serve uh, with the interagency, 
the State Department, across the political apparatus, and I know the will is strong across um, all of that apparatus, and, and the desire to do the right thing is incredibly strong, too. Um, you know, at the heart of my request and really what the Congress has asked for in the Pacific Deterrence Initiative is, you know, what is that credible posture um, that sustains um, regional prosperity, U.S. prosperity in combination with it, and peace in the region and for the United States? And, you know, that takes a forward combat credible posture. And our mix of forward-based forces and the rotational forces that we can send to theater bring incredible capability here. And um, so I'm quite confident. I'm also very pleased with the improvements that uh, the United States is making in cyber and um, uh, space capabilities going forward, which are going to be critically important. And you know, part of the United States joint force capability set already, and important, and will be more and more important to it going forward. And then most importantly, um, the network of allies and uh, partners that we have in the region. Um, if we can put all those things together, we'll have the correct force postured correctly with an interoperable and compatible set of allies and partners that have the kind of deterrent strategy that can you know, convince China that the costs of military action against any of their neighbors is are simply too high. And that's been at the heart of our approach here over the last three years. And I, I've been quite encouraged by the conversations we've had so far in the administration as they've you know, done China task force and thought through um, you know, their North Korea policy and their approach to the region. And, and there's certainly more to know that uh, to, about that in the next few months. Um, but I'm quite confident in all that. Again, I come back to the thing I told you at the very beginning. You know, two-thirds of the global population and two-thirds of the global economy is going to be centered on the Indo-Pacific. The future of America is dependent on success, peace, prosperity out here in the Indo-Pacific. And um, as long as we, you know, keep that in the forefront of our minds, the security investments that we make out here um, will, will, will follow. And um, they'll serve the nation's needs when it comes to security and prosperity quite well. Well, Admiral, you actually, I think, summed up the, the I was going to ask you a, a last question, and maybe we'll at least give you the opportunity for, for a sort of valedictory. Uh, and, and I think in a way you, you, you just summed it up. But um, as you prepare to, to step down, and of course, uh, we thank you for your service and, and 39 years of, of uh, defending and, and helping to defend this country and, and all the way up to, again, I, I think for most Americans, it's really hard to, to, to get their heads around just the, the, the scope of Indo-Pacific Command and uh, what you all do on a daily basis and, and uh, the, uh, the amount of, of commitment that this country makes. Um, so, so again, as a valedictory, um, is there anything that that you'd, you'd like to say uh, to the American people, you know, not that they're all listening, but, you know, we hope they will, but uh, about what your, the people underneath uh, your command do and, and, and again, what it means for America to be engaged uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, oh, thanks for the, uh, thanks, Misha. Thanks for the opportunity. You know, first, and, and, I think I might have said it already, but it's been the privilege of my lifetime to serve this country. 
and that privilege is really born um, from working with the men and women that uh, make up our armed forces. Uh, you know, it is the asymmetric advantage that the United States Armed Force has really when you stack it up against any of the armed forces around the globe. Their ability to, our ability, our people's ability to focus on the mission and deliver success time and again, you know, in the tactical and operation environment is critically, critically important to us. When you talk uh, to someone like me, or I talk to my peers uh, that have recently retired, um, you know, they all look back on their time in the service and it always comes back to the people. Um, you, you know, we always talk about the thing that we love in, in any service, right? Whether you're on the bridge of a destroyer, if it's me, you know, um, the cockpit for an aviator, tank, infantry for those guys, um, it becomes less about the designator that they had to use a Navy term and, and much more about the people that they served with. Um, so I'll absolutely miss them the most. Now, the second thing I'll say is the, the values that America has represented across the globe, um, really throughout its history, but certainly in the wake of uh, World War II, which resonates so strongly here in the Indo-Pacific and in my time in Europe, um, I know it resonates, uh, it resonates, excuse me, strongly uh, with the European populations as, as well. Um, it is the beacon that has brought together the international community and really a level of prosperity that is incomparable when you look back over history. Um, our allies and partners, our willingness to work with others is what has brought peace and security to most of the globe. We need to continue to have that kind of approach. Be confident that people are working with us and be confident in the fact that U.S. values inspire others around the globe. And if we do that, there's no doubt in my mind we will continue to be successful. Again, it's been a great privilege in my lifetime uh, to serve this nation. It's, it's coming to a close quite rapidly now. Um, we're just a week away, but uh, I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you. And um, look forward maybe to connecting again in the future and uh, staying close. Um, uh, security interests have been, uh, uh, you know, core to what I've been doing over the last 39 years, and I'd like to remain involved. So thanks to you, Misha, and thanks to you, John, for the opportunity to speak today. Well, Admiral, it's been it's been our privilege, and uh, I think uh, the summation that you gave can't be bettered upon. So I won't even try again. We thank you for your service, for everything you've done, but but really for us and our listeners, walking through an incredibly complex environment, an incredibly complex hierarchy of of challenges and demands, but finishing it up with that optimistic view both of our country and what it does uh, in the world. Uh, and there's no question uh, that uh, I know everyone who works on Asian issues will be eager once you've uh, taken off the uniform to continue to hear from you and 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 uh, bring in the, uh, the experience that you've had and the thoughts and ideas. So on behalf of John Yu uh, and all of us, we want to thank you and thank you for joining us on the Pacific Century.
podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.